Hello and welcome back to DCN series of podcasts on democracy in limelight. I'm Nancy Mekarchan, DCN moderator and host, and I'm delighted to be joined by our distinguished guest, Nikos Panagiotou, an associate professor of School of Journalism and Mass Media Communication, a faculty of Economics and Political Sciences at Aristotle University, and also a Deade scholar to Deutsche Welle. Also, I have with me Alain Arakian. She is a visiting junior fellow at the Alliance for Security Democracy at the German Marshall Fund and an MA candidate at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale, where she focuses on the intersection of disinformation and democratic resilience. Together, we will discuss democracy, trust and freedom of speech, building resilient societies. The title of the episode might probably say it all, but I would like to form it like this. A key aspect of resilient society are, firstly, its ability to shape spaces where trust can be practiced and developed. Secondly, freedom of speech can be exercised. And I think, last but not least, authoritarian situations are transformed into more civilized and democratic configurations. So I, I invite you both to share your definitions for each element, if possible, to better shape what is a resilient society and what you suggest in building a resilient society. And also I would like to ask, uh, could democracy be designed to be resilient in this era? If it can, does the combination of the three fundamentals which are democracy, trust, and freedom of speech, build more resilient societies. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nancy, um, for the excellent uh, question. I think about this question a lot of how do we build a resilient society and what a resilient democratic society is. And I think um, the what you mentioned Trust is definitely one of the key ingredients in my mind, but I want to step back a little bit and um, unpack this question a bit, because if I were to give the shortest possible answer to your question of how do we build a resilient democratic society, I would say right now in almost every country in the world, increasing civic engagement and education are definitely key. But I think that's a little too simple and broad and definitely not panacea by um, any means. So I'd like to step back and dig a little deeper. Um, I think if we were to speak pretty broadly, um, a, a resilient society that's resilient against disinformation um, needs to have, you know, so many of those aspirational uh, moonshot goals a healthy media environment, uh, information security, um, civic trust, social capital. Um, when we think about building a resilient society, though, I think we need to really look context. We should be context specific. What the United States needs at the moment to build a resilient democratic society is pretty different from what Armenia needs. Um, and I think pretty different probably from what um, Greece needs as well. And I'd love to hear a little bit more. But I think, yeah, there are key ingredients that, that every country can benefit from. And I think civic engagement and education are definitely key among those. But beyond that, we always need to be very context specific. I would like to build upon uh, what Ellen described because and uh, I also consider that resilience is a key element that we have to take into account 
when we talk about our democratic societies. Firstly, we will have and they, we will have to differentiate that resilience have a different meaning depending on the type of democratic uh, regime that exists in, in countries. But in general, I would say that resilience is about trust. Resilience means that a society that feels that it is being represented, that it is being included into the political system to which they have trust. Trust in this case is very crucial because I trust the people that they represent me. I trust them as being my voice. I trust them as uh, as uh, being elect, uh, selected and elected to represent me. Otherwise, the society cannot be resilient. And to that end, all across the globe, we have seen a decline in trust, a decline in uh, representation, which is a key element that we need to address it in order actually to widen or to deepen our democracies. This element means that in order to move forward, democratic societies should be inclusive. This means that we should find ways to represent uh, people that they have been excluded out uh, right now. And we have very specific examples. There is a crisis in the welfare system that means that persons of our societies are being left behind. These people that are being left behind, they tend not to trust the government and the representation system. And this is why they tend to be more inclined towards autocratic voices or regimes or to lean towards polarization. This is what actually, uh, and this is how actually I approach uh, resilience in, um, in nowadays. But um, Ellen, I think it is equally important what you have mentioned as well. I mean, how we can differentiate resilience in different uh, countries? What this meaning, what is the meaning out of it? For example, between Europe, let's say wider Europe, okay, uh, and the state and the United States, or even um, or even with uh, some countries from Asia, for example, India, etc. What do you think about? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with everything that you said, um, especially about the importance of an inclusive society. You know, we often talk about how an inclusive and a tolerant society is just a key ingredient for democracy. And I think that comes into such sharp contrast when we look at the way that disinformation agents will try to undermine democracy, right? Because I think the United States here is a prime example. So much of foreign state disinformation about the United States is about race and racism because it is such a a tense pain point. Um, Structural racism is very, very real, but the country hasn't um, dealt with it in a very profound or meaningful way. Um, It persists. And I think disinformation that nudges um, and really hits hard at those pain points, especially in a way that, you know, that targets communities to do exactly what you just said, you know, trust their authorities less, not believe that their elected bodies or even that, you know, their state health departments, I think, which is um, really relevant in a time of COVID, serves them because historically that hasn't been the case. Um, 
So I completely agree with with everything that you said. And I'll add that I think that is one of the reasons why I think civic engagement, like high levels of civic engagement are so very important because Building civic engagement basically gives people avenues to participate, right, in their local and national communities. It's what connects your individual experience to the broader collective, and it's what gives us all um, a shared experience to talk about things that unite us um, as members of a particular democratic community, whether that's in India or Armenia or Greece or the United States. Um, It also creates space for you know, necessary discourse to happen for people to talk about issues, for people to find common language and to realize that they, they do have a shared reality instead of, instead of, you know, little bubbles that we all occupy. So I think those connections and those conversations, um, that cartilage that can bridge between people and communities, they kind of, they generate a collective that can withstand efforts to erode trust because it's also how we all build um, you know, to, to borrow some theoretical thinking from Robert Putnam and, you know, bowling alone. It's it's what generates um, reciprocity and generalized trust in a society. So, yeah, I'm, we're absolutely on the same page. I think you said it very well. In order actually to, to, to discuss about resilience, uh, I have to have in mind that this information, uh, not participating in the elections, are actually the same coin, let's say, that both of them are being built in lack of trust in the institutions, in the persons, in the system. This is a global phenomenon. We have seen an erosion of trust in, in, in political institutional across the globe. And as a result, comes disinformation, comes polarizations, comes hate speech, because people try to find ways to be represented through other means. What is the answer? I think that civic engagement, civic participation, that it will give actually voice to the voiceless, people that they feel that they are marginalized, along with what I argue, uh, very specific policies of social welfare that will be very specific, very uh, targeted to specific uh, social groups or parts of the society that they are suffering, that they don't understand what globalization is, people that they feel that that they don't have a a work tomorrow, etc. So... This is what resilience, in a way, can also be characterized as. I can I can add okay. something here, which is that, um, Nikos, I think you know, hearing you speak um, and connect all of these issues from voting to social welfare, I think what we're really getting down to is an idea of insecurity, right? Um, that that exactly. lack of trust is also, yeah, very closely tied to an insecurity about your place in the larger collective, and I think that just digs so deep into the idea of any political community, a democracy or not. And I think those insecurities are um, are absolutely a way to, to make people both afraid and suspicious and far easier to, to, to lead in malign directions. Afraid. I think that this is a, a word, afraid. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and if we have as an example, a working example, the case of uh, vaccine, and the, the inclined of people to get vaccinated. What we are seeing taking place in Europe, for example, in, in France, in Germany, in Greece, in Armenia, in uh, watching portions of our population that they are afraid, that they are suspicious, that they feel that truth is not being told, told to them. 
So this factor of fear, it is very important in order how, for example, to materialize and say how we will engage these people. The first thing is to tackle fear, because this is the weakest point, actually. How this can be done? By actually engaging people into the democratic process. So this means inclusive media, media that people will feel that they can trust. Secondly, by promoting or addressing specific issues, such as uh, economical issues, uh, such as social security, health security, etc. Because the resilience, I think, it, the, and the loss of trust and the, the consequences that it has to our societies can be, uh, can be easily seen in the case of uh, COVID-19. Why people tend, uh, people that used to, to trust doctors and their opinion, now instead of trusting doctors, they're moving their trust into another sphere, in a digital sphere, in a digital bubble where they feel that they are more secure. This is another word that comes after fear. I feel insecure, actually. And as a result, this insecurity makes me to be more open to other voices. Don't believe, don't believe them. They try to control you, they, they, et cetera, et cetera. But here it is actually a Trojan horse of our democracies that specific powers try to exploit. They can understand that this is a characteristic of democratic societies. Debate. We have to debate. And this is inherited in our democracies, that each issue should be debated. But what they do it is that they bring it in this debate polarization. They actually spread fear. They spread insecurity along as well with um, accusations of elites, accusations of corruption. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you hit um, a number of great points. And I really like what you said about, you know, people being afraid that something hasn't been told to them. Um, and I think we absolutely saw this a lot with COVID-19. And, you know, this was this was a phenomenon that that everyone struggled with, that health and state authorities all over the world, we were everyone was trying to figure out what the pandemic was about. Information was changing rapidly. New discoveries were being made. It was very much a process that we all needed to go through together as, as thoughts and thinking evolved. But I think you're absolutely right. In some, in some cases, people truly did believe in this could be uh, perhaps tied to past, you know, state um, actions and actions by public officials when they hadn't been straightforward or forthcoming and when that trust wasn't established. But I do think that you're absolutely right that some people truly, truly think that there are truths that haven't been told to them or that there are policies that are not based in their best interests. And um, I think, you know, closer to home, I think we also saw this in Armenia during um, the 2020 war. There was broad perception that there were things happening behind closed doors that people were not privy to. Uh, we see this in the United States also with some conspiracy theories spinning facts around what happens behind um, closed doors in Congress or what happens on the Capitol Hill. It's And I think it all speaks to this perceived divide between the people and the state, right? Between the people and um, 
people and, and elected officials who are supposed to be serving their interests. And, and perhaps there are, but the, the very perception that there is this gap between these two, this gap that should not exist in a democracy is so easy to manipulate. Um, and I think, you know, you say you spoke about polarization as well. And I think it goes back to what we started our conversation with about people living in different shared realities, about there not being common ground for us to debate because as disinformation kind of sends us in many different directions and as we we kind of depart that common ground, a metaphorical town square where we can really talk about how we can come together over common goals and ideas, I think debate actually becomes harder because it's easier to have debate over, you know, based on false facts um, or false ideas instead of the questions that we should be, we should be talking about. I would like actually to take your point about this gap. We, we actually both agree that this gap can be characterized as perceived and as real. So democratic societies are obliged to address this real gap. Why parts of our society are being marginalized? There are various uh, suggestions, discussions, like that we should think about blue collars, that they have been left behind, and they have been actually been open to various other voices. So we have actually to work for these parts of the societies for which this gap is real. And then we have to address the other part, as you mentioned, the perceived one. We will have to, to see and, and, and analyze and understand, is it, a, is it a real divide or actually a divide that has been constructed to seem so? And this is where the issue of disinformation comes into. It constructs frames where we tend to believe that they are real. In addition to that, and this is why DCN uh, Digital Communication Network are working, that we do not consider disinformation as a technical issue. It, it is a purely a political issue that is ground-rooted into political causes. And in order to tackle it, we don't need actually to tell people that um, uh, this is fake news, whatever. People will continue to believe it because it actually addresses their fears, their insecurity or the gap that they see between their lives and the lives of someone else that they consider that are benefited from that. I think it's a, a sentence that we've all heard many times, right? That the most effective disinformation is one that's based on a little kernel of truth. Um, and I think as I hear you, I'm reminded of something that I, I like to I like to remind myself actually often that disinformation isn't always about making people believe a certain thing, right? Often it's about just causing enough chaos and confusion that a community is distracted from the root structural issues that make them so vulnerable, right? That we are um, we're distracted in the United States by dealing with so many uh, kind of residual problems from the effects of recent disinformation campaigns that we're distracted from addressing the very root causes of what makes people feel marginalized and what makes um, the social fabric as a whole so fragmented and so vulnerable and susceptible to manipulation. I think I absolutely agree with you that it's really the path to resilience is a path that's built on identifying and addressing those root vulnerabilities, whatever it is about your unique society that makes you 
fragmented that makes some people left out of the democratic process, that is what needs to be addressed long term uh, to build sustained resilience. And, and to that extent, I think it, it is very helpful to include in our discussion actually the role of social enterprise in actually building resilient communities, resilient societies. To what extent economy and economic progress, but not in the terms of setting up a, uh, an economic idea that will exploit the community, but rather will make the community to be engaged, I think it is also a crucial factor. And uh, you have written uh, a lot about it. Do you want to share some thoughts about it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that is a key, that a, a key topic that we definitely need to talk about. And I'm really glad that you agree because I have, you know, I have a conviction that, uh, especially in societies where that are working on strengthening themselves democratically and also strengthening or making at least changes in terms of how they're shaped economically, I think social enterprise, the idea that a business does not, a business as an employer and as a member of the broader community is not just motivated by a financial bottom line. I think that is one of the key ways to make changes, especially on a more local or regional community-based level. I think, you know, we often pay attention to how individuals um, or governments affect people's experience of their own democracy, but I think the role of business, again, both as an employer and as a member of the broader community, has been understudied. Uh, we we are definitely waking up to it. There are more conversations happening about social enterprise, you know, a, a double bottom line, a, a business that creates both social value and economic value, and that does not compromise financial returns just because it happens to also be guided by um, a set of moral standards. I think as a model, exploring this has huge potential for changing also the way that they see that people see themselves as included in their economic communities. I think the way that people are treated, you know, we spend so much of our day at work, whether physically or online. I think that has such a huge effect on how we perceive ourselves to be as part of a larger collective, the way we're treated, the way we're compensated, the examples that we see our employer setting for our, um, economic community and also for a very globalized community. I think setting that toward a path where a social mission and the social footprint of a business is taken into core consideration and not as an afterthought is a crucial pathway forward. Yes, and uh, and I think that it is a factor that it has not been um, taken uh, as important as it should be. And why I, I argue so? Because we have to move beyond the, the traditional concept of uh, companies, businesses, etc., and just talk about profit. We should actually have into, into our minds that in this case, and now what it is needed it is actually companies to build up social capital, meaning that to be part of the society rather than exploiting the society. This is the meaning that I actually give uh, in this social enterprise approach. Uh, and a very good example, I think, that will greatly help in building resilient societies, it is how to motivate people uh, regarding the climate change. We all know that in order to push forward the climate change, investments are needed, jobs will be lost, and they should equally 
or very fastly should should uh, develop new new jobs. Otherwise, you will you will have parts of the society marginalized. You will have parts of the society that they feel excluded and fear for the future. So what it is needed is actually to take a grasp on issues to feel that they are owning these issues. Recently, and even till today, uh, Greece is tackling with, uh, with wildfires that are devastating the country. What we have seen that climate change is here and it can work upon an issue that we can build and we can motivate society to understand the importance to work for uh, climate change, but as a, a way of including society, not excluding it. Again, we're talking about bridging the individual to the community, right? About feeling like you're part of a greater collective that has shared goals and that you have both a stake in the future of those goals as well as the power to do something about it. You're absolutely right. Thank you for bringing up your insights and recommendations even beyond this topic, including various spheres of life such as climate change, healthcare and active citizenship. This much for today. Thank you for listening to us. Don't forget to follow DCN social media updates and stay tuned for the next episodes on Spotify and other platforms as well. Thank you. The following series of podcasts are being conducted by Digital Communication Network in partnership with Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom and World Learning.